Gracious God and Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. On the back of your bulletin, uh, you've got a couple of sermon notes up at the top. Uh, I'm going to just touch on that for a moment. Uh, you'll notice in verse 31 of our sermon text, gospel reading for this morning, Jesus says, this is when Judas has gone out now. This is Monday, Thursday evening, the evening before our Lord is crucified. Uh, Judas has left, and Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Okay? Speaking of his crucifixion on the cross, that's the glory of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's his death and his resurrection as well. And he's speaking of it as if it's already accomplished. And there's a term for that uh, in our theology. It's called a proleptic language. It's speaking of a future event as if it's already happened, as if it's already accomplished. And there's many examples of this throughout Scripture. And sometimes it confuses us when we, when we read these things and we wonder, okay, well, how can that be? For example, I cite 2 Timothy 1.10 where St. Paul writes these words. He says, Christ Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Well, last time I checked, people still die. We have funerals. We go to visitations. We're not immune from death. It still touches us. So how can Paul speak that way? Well, the answer is he's speaking proleptically. He's speaking, in other words, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for all the world, our resurrection is so sure and certain that Paul speaks of it as already accomplished, you see. That, that's prolepsis, that's proleptic language then. It's so certain that it's, it's a done deal. You can bank on it. And so you speak of it in that way. That's why St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, says that we have been raised up with Christ and we've been seated with him in the heavenly realms. Oh, really? I haven't seen you in heaven lately. You haven't seen me in heaven lately. But it's so sure and certain because of the finished work of Jesus for our salvation that we can speak of it that way as if it's already complete. So that's an important point. I don't want to pass over that. I want you to know that because when you read that in the scriptures then, you kind of know what's going on. This is our sure and certain language that conveys the truth of what we believe and what we know. And then verses 31 and 32 Notice how um, uh, Jesus and the Father are really just sort of joined at the hip in everything <laughs> in John's Gospel. It's just the way it is. Uh, whatever Jesus does, the Father does. Whatever the Father does, Jesus does. Whatever happens to Jesus happens with the Father in a sense. You know, it, it, they're, they're just so intertwined, you see, that when Christ is glorified, the Father is glorified. And in the glorification of the Father, the Father then turns around and glorifies his Son. So that's just a couple of points uh, I want you to note before we get into the real sermon for the day. So um, take a look in your outline. Uh, Roman numeral number one, notice this. Jesus calls his disciples little children. He calls them little children. This is not unusual language for Jesus. 
it's not unusual language for the Apostle John who wrote this gospel. When you read his first letter, uh, he talks about, he, he refers to you and me, the reader, as little children. It's not unusual language, okay? And so, uh, two weeks ago in our gospel lesson, Jesus is standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The disciples, uh, seven of them, are in a boat. They have fished all night and they've caught nothing. And what does Jesus say? He says, children, have you caught anything? This is the way Jesus speaks. And uh, in Matthew's gospel, I cite Matthew 18, where um, Jesus takes a little child and stands this little fella up in the middle of the disciples. They're arguing about who, who's the greatest, right? And he says, unless you change and become like a little child, you'll never even enter heaven. Now, when we ask what's so special about a little child, we know it's not that they're innocent. They're not innocent. They got a mind of their own. You know, they'll go their own way apart from God if you let them, just like you and I do. No, it's not that they're innocent. It's that they are completely helpless. They are dependent upon the care of the parents, you see. And that's the way we are with God. And so it's entirely appropriate for Jesus to refer to his disciples, to refer to all of us as little children. And so we see in this gospel reading for today, point A, Jesus fulfills the Passover role as head of the family. He's the head of the family. You remember uh, in the Emmaus story in Luke 24, uh, Jesus comes upon these two men. They're walking along. He's opening the scriptures to them. They don't know who he is yet. See, they don't know who he is. But they invite him in when they reach their destination. And he sits down at their table at the head of it. And he takes the bread and breaks it and gives thanks to God. Then they recognize him. Then their eyes are open. See, he, he does the head of the family stuff wherever he is. Wherever Jesus sits is the head of the table. In other words, he exercises authority in this context. And so point B, uh, and this is important as well, Jesus speaks as a dying father would speak to his children. He's about to leave this world. He's about to die. And he speaks as a dying father would speak to them. He gives them boundaries, including a new command. He gives them advice, in other words. Uh, number one, where I'm going, you cannot come. See, that's a, that's a prohibition. That's a boundary issue there. You know, you stay here, I'm going there. I'm going to the cross. There, Jesus does what only he can do. You know, he's the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You and I can never fulfill that role. He fulfills it for you and me. And, and also, I think he has to go alone to the cross because that cross is the loneliest place on earth. It's the loneliest place on earth because when he hangs on the cross, no one understands why he's there. They understand correctly that he's abandoned by God, he's forsaken by God. The Old Testament makes that clear. Whoever hangs on a tree or hangs on a cross is derelict. They're abandoned by God. They're cursed. 
So they understand he's cursed, but they don't understand that he bears your curse and mine. He bears the curse for all of us. The reason he's there is for you and me. That's what they don't get, you see. And so throughout the Gospels, you see the disciples are like children. We don't understand what this guy's doing. It doesn't become clear to us until after he's raised and he breathes the Holy Spirit upon us. And we begin to understand and to remember what he said before, that you know, uh, this should not be news to us because he's, he's told us this is what would happen. All these things become clear after the resurrection and only after. So point number two, he says, he issues not only a prohibition, where I'm going you cannot come, but he says to love one another. That is to say, Christians should love other Christians. Disciples should love other disciples. Now, that may sound odd to us because we understand God loves the world, right? So much that he gave his son. So why is it that we should not love the world? Shouldn't we do that? And in fact, some scholars here suggest that Jesus is advocating kind of a lower level ethic, right? A kind of a lower ethical standard than the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, love your enemies. See, that means love everybody. And so some people say, well, here, you know, he's, this is a lower ethical standard. It's not really worthy of Jesus to talk this way. As if he's saying, well, just love one another and you don't have to worry about the, the other folks. But he's not saying that at all. The purpose of, of our loving one another is so that others may see that we belong to him. The reason we're to love one another is so that others may see the love of Jesus at work in us. See, his visible presence will be withdrawn. You and I become the visible presence that way. So Jesus will be visible to the world through our love for one another. And I have to say, even though there's an inherent closeness between us as members of the church, yet, but you've got to admit, it's also very difficult to love those who are near you, uh, to continue loving those who are near you, because you, you understand their weaknesses and their faults. And, and so, in, in one sense, it's a tougher call. It's a tougher, it's a more difficult challenge to love those you live with, to love those you rub shoulders with every day or every other day or every week, you see. But that's the love to which we're called. It's a forgiving kind of love. It's a love that enables you to stay together, not just to admire someone from a distance. You know, that's easy to do, right? Say, oh, I love everybody, right? But you don't have to live with everybody. If you did, you'd feel different. But this is the kind of love that demands forgiveness. It demands reconciliation. Point A. An important part of our witness to the world is our love for the church. It's our love for one another. I would just write the church in there. Jesus doesn't say that all people will know that you're my disciples if you work miracles. 
He didn't say that. He didn't say that all people will know that you're my disciples if you love me or if you love the Father. He said all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. If you can stay together long enough to make that witness to the world, they'll get it. I quote uh, Cyprian, uh, early church father from, uh, I believe, the second, late second century. No one can love the head, that's Jesus, he's the head of the body, and hate the body, the people, the members. You can't love the head if you hate the body. If you don't love your brother whom you can see, how can you love God whom you do not see? the same thing. That's the way John puts it in his first epistle. So church love is the way we witness to the world, to love one another. Roman numeral two, imitation is learning behavior by observing the actions of others. And you see this all over the Gospels. You know, Jesus says, follow me. What does he mean by that? He means do what I do. Okay? Do what I do. Imitate me. St. Paul tells us repeatedly that we are to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And he speaks of imitation in the context of God's fatherliness. We're his children, you see. And, and it's, you know, point A children learn by imitating those whom they trust and admire, those whom they look up to. They learn by imitation. You know, toddlers will pretend to brush their teeth if you're brushing your teeth. If you're uh, brushing your hair, combing your hair, they'll start combing their hair. You know, they just, just imitate. They mimic. They do it all the time. I, I saw a video of a little girl uh, trying to get on her mother's rowing machine and pulling one of the handles. But she, she couldn't pull it. She wasn't strong enough. She was just a toddler. But she was even grunting like her mother would, would grunt. Ooh, 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 you know? And, and that's, that's the way children are, right? When, when Anna was a toddler, uh, she would, after we would come home from church, she would stand on a little stool and she would pretend that she's uh, preaching to an audience, okay? She just would, would do that. She would go through those motions of, of doing it. Now, all of us know that. We see these kinds of things all the time. And it's not just children who learn by imitation. Adults, we, this is how we learn as well. You know, if you want to learn how to do something, you go on YouTube, you watch them do it, then you, you get an idea of how to do it. You just imitate them, you see. Much of what we learn is by copying someone else. So point B, whom do you trust and admire? You know, a lot of imitating takes place at a subconscious level. We don't even realize that that's what we're doing, but we do it. We just fall into it. We learn bad behavior by being around people who behave badly. You know, you can go to a Christian school and learn to cuss. I'm not against Christian schools. I'm all in favor of them. You learn to cuss there, just like you learn to cuss other places. Okay. You just pick it up. You know, suicides 
you know, they, they talk about copycat suicides, right? Suicides happening in clusters, unfortunately. It gives, it gives other people the idea. And, and they have this, this urge, a twisted urge, to do the same thing. There's copycat crimes, you know, the sensational uh, coverage of certain crimes in the media provokes people out there to do this very same kind of crime. Maybe to, to, to even best it and, and to be even worse in, in the commission of the crime. Sinful behavior is contagious, and so is love. So is kindness. It is contagious as well. People who are on the receiving end of random acts of kindness feel like showing kindness to others as well. Jesus said, just, this is point one under part B, just as I have loved you, so you love one another. That is the motivation for imitation. That's the motivation. It's his love for us. We love because he first loved us. Children, toddlers and others, play dress up. They dress up like mom or dad, a cowboy, uh, a doctor, whatever. It's called role play. The child assumes the role of someone else, someone older, someone mature, someone they look up to. Jesus calls us to be someone else. He calls us to be Jesus to those around us. We, we role play Jesus to our spouse, we role play Jesus to our children, to fellow members of the body of Christ. And how do we manage that? I mean, being sinful people, we have minds of our own. How do we do that? You know, it's our nature to erupt in anger when we're provoked. It, it's our nature to avoid speaking to people that we don't like. It's our nature to speak evil of others when they're not there to defend themselves. So, who are we to imitate Christ, really? Who are we? You know, St. Paul wrote that we're not adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God. It's all about Him, not us. God has made us His own children in our baptism. What he did for us in baptism was transformational. You may not have felt different at the time, but we stand on the promises of God regarding baptism. Go to Ephesians 5. Go to Titus 3. Go to John 3. Read about baptism and what God's doing for you there. Go to Ephesians 5. You can't read those promises without feeling empowered and loved. When you remember that, you feel like giving what you're receiving. God has made us his own children through baptism, and what do children do? We imitate. That's why it's so important to see Jesus in the scriptures. That's why it's so important to hear him proclaim. As you experience his kindness and his mercy, you will desire to show kindness and mercy to others. You'll imitate Jesus. You're tempted to anger because someone's provoked you. But being conscious of Jesus enables you 
to do what Solomon said. A gentle answer turns away wrath. That's Jesus. We're tempted to bear grudges, and often we do. But Jesus forgives, and being conscious of him, we're empowered to forgive as well. As you receive Christ's love by recalling his work for you in baptism, as you receive his love in the Lord's Supper, you are being primed by God, you're being empowered by God to imitate Christ and to role-play him to your spouse, to your fellow members here in the body of Christ. That's how Christ makes himself visible to the world today. It's through imitation, through your imitation of him, through my imitation of him, and that's how all people will know that we belong to him. My friends, whoever loves the head cannot hate the body. And until Jesus returns, it'll be this way. Until he returns, he will make himself visible to the world through you and me and how we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.